Hi, I'm Caroline, a yoga therapist and breathwork practitioner with a special interest in menopause based in Edinburgh. And hi, I'm Dr. Claire, a GP and the British Menopause Society accredited specialist based in London. Together, we are the Menopause Sisters and we are here to guide and support you through your menopause journey. So welcome to the Menopause Sisters show with myself, Caroline, and my sister, Dr. Claire. And we're really pleased to welcome and introduce Dr. Alison Macbeth today, a breast specialty doctor in the, in the NHS, actually up here in Scotland, which is always a bonus. <laughs> so just across from me in Glasgow, in the NHS Breast Clinic Unit in Glasgow, and also she holds an advanced menopause certificate in menopause care from the British Menopause Society. She's passionate about meeting the often overlooked needs of women in all stages of treatment and recovery from breast cancer as well as those with a high risk of family history of breast cancer. She was inspired to start a menopause clinic within her NHS breast unit after seeing cancer-free patients who were suffering greatly from the menopausal side effects of treatment and Alison advocates for high quality evidence-based menopause care for all women including those who have had or are having treatment for breast cancer. So welcome, Alison. And I wonder if we could maybe even just start with the women you're seeing in clinic, actually. I think maybe that's a good a good place to start because of what you what you decided to set up, what you decided to take forwards here. Yeah, um, so I see women often straight after their surgery, during their chemotherapy to kind of 10, 20 years down the line. And I think everybody's struggling at some point of their journey and um, I think I, I've been in the breast unit now for around about 10 years. And I think because I was the GP in the breast unit, I was getting kind of referred all the, all the patients that were really struggling and nobody really knew, knew how to deal with them. Um, I think for the GPs, they just needed a bit of expert guidance. Um, and much as I love my breast surgeons, they are not menopause trained. Um, oncologists, most menopause, sorry, most oncologists are not menopause trained. And so, you know, these women were just in this void and nobody knew really quite what to do with them. And I just thought this is bonkers. Every breast unit should have a, a menopause specialist still, you know, trained in breast um, and so that, yeah, that's why I did my advanced training with the BMS so I could go to management and say, look, you know, we need this clinic. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I'm basically seeing women in all stages of their treatment with various and all and sundry symptoms. And it's just really important to, I think one of the biggest things that I can give them is the time. My, I've got long appointments, so I can give them the time and just kind of obviously validate their symptoms as well. Alison, just in terms of how they get to you, are they, are they, because... We know that lots of these women are sort of lost, aren't they, in in the healthcare system, and not everyone has the opportunity to speak about it, nor do they think they can. So how are these women getting to you? So if they're already our patients, then they just are, are, our breast care nurses will forward them to me, or I just find them naturally in clinic uh, when I'm seeing them for follow-up. I think the problem with most breast clinics now is um, so many are doing what we call virtual follow-up, which means that they have all their acute treatment and then they finish their chemo, their radiotherapy, and then they get kind of sent off and they then get sent for yearly mammograms uh, for five years, but they're not actually seeing anyone. We used to in the old days, and I personally thought that was a good thing, although it did heighten a lot of women's anxiety. I think the... 
the virtual follow-up, although it's it's kind of good to get the numbers through the clinic, we're missing a trick and we're missing the opportunity to pick up these women because actually even the women themselves often don't realise that, that a lot of the symptoms they've got is down to their treatment. Um, you know, so many of my patients don't don't understand that their genital urinary syndrome of menopause or their joint pains or their urinary symptoms or, you know, their dryers, whatever, is is down to their treatment. So they're, I, I just feel they're just kind of lost in this void and they're having their virtual follow-ups and everyone thinks everything is fine, but everything is not fine. Uh, I was doing a workshop in, um, in Fife today for, for some women around menopause and that came up in the conversation today, actually towards the end. Um, and there was somebody having some treatment still on tamoxifen and just saying actually I think some of these symptoms are menopause they're not related to what I thought they might be and it was a really lovely open discussion we were able to have today and she was just really grateful I think to be in a room full of 10 people sharing what was going on for them although she was having some treatment going oh well actually maybe it's this is not all the this is not just treatment there's other stuff going on and she was able to say right okay I recognize this and I can take this to my healthcare professional and discuss it further so I mean this is I think one of the reasons why I think it takes so long it's good to have a long appointment because you're really unpicking all their symptoms because yes a lot of their symptoms might be down to or their medication but it might simply just because they are, are menopausal or perimenopausal at diagnosis or they were on HRT and had to stop their treatment. And so often it's a whole combination of things. So is it a case of maybe the healthcare professional knew Alison in this in this clinic asking the right questions to tease that out? Um, or is it a case of can we give people kind of some, a heads up on some of the questions they should be thinking about asking themselves or their healthcare professionals. And I realise it's a bit of both. It's a two-way conversation. But as you mentioned, you know, a lot of follow-ups are being done online. So maybe what can the patient ask? What can the patient be thinking about? So I always get the patient to, uh, it's nice if they filled out the, um, you know, their menopause symptom questionnaire. Um, and that, that really helps. You know, listening to podcasts is really great for the patient because it might just kind of throw up, oh, you know, I've got this symptom. Well, I didn't realise this symptom was was menopausal. So kind of doing a wee bit of homework beforehand. I go and do workshops at Maggie's. So, you know, there's there's all these kind of workshops that patients could go to. There's um, young breast cancer uh, workshops at Breast Cancer Now as well. So there's... Um, you know, there's all sorts, there's kind of Facebook peer groups, especially the Danny Billington Menopause and Cancer. She's got a Facebook uh, peer support group. So, you know, you can get lots of kind of advice or questions to to ask, um, you know, before coming to clinic. Uh, things through with your breast care nurse. I would say your breast care nurse is your breast friend. Um, and it's going to be your first port of call. So, you know, if you're not sure, have a chat with, with the breast care nurse. We often uh, yeah, we often talk about the nurse. a nurses, just this kind of wealth of information. And as you say, often you know you you kind of best friend when you're going through treatment. And I'm glad you mentioned Danny as well. We we interviewed her a couple of years ago, and she's a great advocate, isn't she? Yeah, um, and yeah. Share, sharing of information as well. 
And uh, breast cancer oh, now have got a menopause um, and cancer leaflet as well. So that's, that's that's quite a good one to have a look at. Brilliant. And I was just thinking about, you know, one of the things that I see a lot in clinic, and we don't have a dedicated breast menopause oncology clinic. It's just that women tend to find you, don't they, and, and, and make a beeline for you. And one of the things that we constantly hear is the GSM symptoms, so genital syndrome of the menopause, uh, urinary syndrome of the menopause. And can I just get you to explain to our listeners just a bit about what that is and how how serious that is? Because I think sometimes it's underplayed a lot. And I just wondered if you could go through what that is for someone that doesn't have cancer, maybe to start with, or doesn't have sure. a history of cancer. So, you know, in the old days, we used to call it atrophic vaginitis. And that's such a, a horrible term because essentially that just means dried out old lady vagina, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's a horrible term. It's kind of shrinkage of all the vaginal tissues. But we know it's so much more than that. So the lack of estrogen certainly does affect the vaginal tissues. It gets dry, it gets fragile, becomes itchy, uncomfortable. Some women find it really uncomfortable to be able to have sex with their partner or, or just purely impossible to have sex with their partner. Um, they'll go buy buckets full of caniston because they think they've got thrush because of the itching. Um, and a dry vagina, people think, oh, well, I can't have genital urinary syndrome of menopause because actually I don't, I, I have a bit of a, a kind of watery discharge, but um, I don't know about you, but I was taught in medical school that a dry vagina weeps and it, and it certainly does. You can get this kind of really kind of watery discharge sometimes. So it's not just about the dryness, but also it's not just about the vagina. You lose the fatty tissue of your labia. It's probably about the only place you're going to lose fatty tissue in the menopause, but you lose the fatty tissue there. So it makes it really uncomfortable to sit or exercise. And you, your labia can, um, can just resorb, um, you know, shrink, completely disappear at times. Um, your clitoris can become much less sensitive, so you find it really difficult um, to, some women find it difficult to have an orgasm because they lose the sensitivity of the clitoris. But really importantly also, it affects the urethra, which is the tube that is going from the vagina into the bladder and the neck of the bladder. So not only do you get all your vaginal and vulval symptoms, but you get that kind of all the urinary symptoms. So the kind of the urgency, the key in the door moment where you get to your front door and you think, oh, my God, I can't get to the loo in time. And sometimes you just don't make it. Uh, you're needing to wee at night. Um, and of course, if you're up all night weeing, that disturbs your sleep, it disturbs your partner's sleep, it then can cause, you know, real issues with the relationships. Um, and, and then, of course, you can't get back to sleep and then you get all the insomnia and all the kind of spiralling of all these symptoms yeah. um, uh, can cause incontinence. So it causes, you know, so many problems. It's not just a dry vagina. <laughs> It's the quality of life, isn't it? What what you're describing, it, it completely ruins the quality of someone's life. And I think it's so underestimated just the impact that it, it can have. And it always saddens me in a way because there are brilliant treatments that are that are available, aren't there? And and I wonder if you could just talk us through some of, we've spoken briefly about these in the past, but they are really safe, effective treatments, aren't they? What are they? Well, I think it's important to go right back to basics and say, look, the vagina before the menopause is, you know, it's a, 
acidic environment. Um, and then after the menopause, the pH level can increase. So what you're wanting to do is you're not wanting to be using harsh soaps. You don't want to be using bubble baths or bath bombs. Bath bombs and vaginas absolutely do not mix. Things with glitter in them, you know, that should not mix. So you want to be either washing with purely with soap because the vagina is like a self-cleaning oven although the vulva isn't and of course if you're having kind of bleeding or you know urinary symptoms or some urinary incontinence you know you might want to use something like um an emollient to wash with such as hydromol um so they're kind of like your basic things and then you go on to your vaginal moisturizers and really important to use a kind of ph balanced moisturizer something like yes um and for sex it's lubricants and everyone mixes up moisturizers and lubricants so lubricants for sex moisturizers exactly what it says in the tin so your yes moisturizer yes lube or suitable lube for sex but then you then move into your hormonal treatments and even for women that don't have breast cancer you still if you go into the labeling of vaginal estrogen it still says this product will give you heart disease stroke breast cancer blood clots i mean it's 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 ridiculous um i really wish we could do something about the package inserts but essentially, vaginal estrogen um, it does not give you breast cancer. And if you've had breast cancer, it's still perfectly safe to use. Virtually all women can use vaginal estrogen. And the only caveat is some people um, get a wee bit worried if you're on aromatase inhibitors um, and uh, using vaginal estrogen, or if you, again, some other people are worried if you've had like a endometrial cancer um, and using vaginal estrogen. But actually, you know, the, the evidence it still isn't strong that you can't use vaginal estrogen. So um, if you haven't had breast cancer, you know, um, vaginal estrogen is perfectly safe. And then there's various different types. Um, you can use something called Vagifem or Vagirux, which is a, a tiny wee tablet, 10 micrograms of estradiol. And you reduce that two to three times a week, ultra low dose. Um, in the old days, we used to use much higher doses, but now we use the 10 micrograms. Um, I personally love the estriol products, and there's there's basically there's there's kind of two types of vaginal estrogen. There's your yeah, estradiol, um, and then there's estriol, which is even kind of lower dose. And I use that. I call it uh, my waxy bullet of goodness, which is in badges, and um, and that is the lowest I dose. I just butt in there. I don't think I'm ever going to forget that phrase when I first heard <laughs> you say that. Alison, because yep. it, it absolutely is. The client texted me and said, what was that thing, that waxy goodness thing? It was hilarious. Waxy bullet of goodness. Yeah. Waxy bullet of goodness. <laughs> Let's hold on to that for a moment. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. And it's this smooth waxy bullet. You pop it in with your fingers and it melts in the vagina and it's moisturising and lubricating. Um, it's the absolute lowest dose of vaginal estrogen that you can get Um and um, it, uh, if uh, after 12 weeks of use of that, then there is zero levels of estriol, which is E3, or estradiol E2 in the serum. So zero. 
Um, and so I love that. And so I use it um, for all my breast patients as well, even though it's on aromatase inhibitors because it's so low dose. Um, you can get blissel gel, which is slightly higher dose. That's a kind of watery gel. It's great for women that are, are you know, really dry down there. Um, it's quite moisturizing and you can put it on your labia as well. And then stepping up a dose, you've got a vest and cream. And again, you can pop that on your labia and inside your vagina. Now, what I usually see, I don't know about other specialists, but actually I personally think sticking a hard plastic tube up your vaginas may be not the most comfortable thing. You know, it might be fine if, you, if you're if you not, you're not terribly bothered with symptoms, but especially for our breast cancer patients, they're really, really dry and sore down there. So I personally don't use anything with hard plastic applicators. And um, with the the treatments like the gel or the cream that do have an applicator, I say, look, don't bother with that, chuck it away, just put the product on your finger and gently insert it with your finger and that's much better. Um, and then you can get these yeah. lovely um, E-strings as well, which is S-trial. Now, unfortunately, there's a shortage of those and we're having great difficulty getting them into the UK at the moment, but, but um, they're fabulous as well. Great for kind of older women that don't have the dexterity in their fingers as well. So just going back to what you said, I wanted to pick up on the fact that the dose of estrogen that you're using with vaginal estrogen is A, very low, and B, not absorbed into the bloodstream like people, many people are concerned about this. Yeah. Just touching on that again, you mentioned that there. So when we're using vaginal estrogen, this is not hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. This is not absorbed into the bloodstream like hormone replacement therapy is just focusing on that for a moment so if you were to use the the vagifem which is the 10 microgram estradiol pastry a year's worth of that is the equivalent of one milligram tablet of oral hrt now i personally love the estradiol products and in that, the estradiol is about 10 times stronger, sorry, eight times stronger than the estradiol products, the products that I use. So again, you're probably looking at, you, you would need to use Invagis for eight years to be the equivalent of one milligram tablet of, of oral estrogen. So it's, it's trying to get it all into perspective and say, look, guys, Please can we get this into perspective? Eight years worth of this treatment is worth one tablet. And still people get really concerned about giving women vaginal estrogen. Um, I frequently uh, get sent letters from GPs saying this woman had breast cancer 40 years ago. Um, you know, she's had loads of urine infections. She's been in hospital sepsis. Can I give her some vaginal estrogen? And just... It just really saddens me. It really saddens me to get those letters and, you know, writing back to all saying, please give this poor woman vaginal estrogen and don't stop it. Because that's the other thing. Don't stop and start. Um, oncologists have an awful um, uh, habit of telling patients, yes, you can try some, some vaginal estrogen, but only for that short time, and then you need to stop it. Of course, as soon as you stop, all the symptoms come back. So don't stop and start, because initially, if you're using these products, and if your vagina is really dry and fragile, 
um, you know, your tissues can be really friable. So when you first use it, your levels can slightly go up in the blood, but they come right back down again. They're usually right back down by three weeks, but, you know, at the very max 12 weeks, but usually right back to pretty much zero at three weeks. But if you stop and start, what's going to happen is your symptoms are going to come back. So your levels are, you know, are going up and down and up and down and up and down. That's not what we want. So start it and keep going with it. Um, doing your pelvic floor exercises to get the blood flow into the vagina is really important as well. And I always say a woman's health physio is worth the weight in gold. So, um, you know, asking your GP if you've got, especially the kind of the urinary incontinence or just getting assessed by women's health physio is, is, is you know, really important. There's a great book that actually I recommend, The Pelvic Floor Bible by Jane Simpson. And it's, you know, it's a really, it's a quick, quick, quick and easy read and it's, it's a really helpful, I think, resource, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. And actually, she did a great podcast with Danny as well. And I think we, you know, it's that understanding that the vagina, you mentioned, Alison, a little bit earlier about the pH of the vagina. There's a kind of microbiome there, isn't it? It's very, you know, the gut microbiome is talked about so much with <laughs> its own little thing. And actually the vagina has its own microbiome biome so it's it's trying to find this kind of balance there to allow your your body to feel okay i mean like even this morning we were talking about itchy vaginas you know i'm really open about uh, taking vaginal estrogen and if anyone took it away from me i'd probably kill them because it actually you know it takes away that feeling of needing to go to the loo it takes that feet away that feeling of perhaps feeling as if i've got cystitis or thrush just been transformational really really has over the last three years and and i think it's you know really important that we we share this and share this information and as you say share that it's such a small dose it's such uh-huh. a small dose about that that you know focusing on for a moment those women who perhaps uh, you know have had a history let's say of breast cancer specifically here we know that some of those treatments that women have had such as the tamoxifen or the letrozole so you're your, your different treatments can really impact your vaginal health, can't they? Yeah, and actually what really upsets me is the fact that a lot of the guidelines are purely just focusing on your risk of breast cancer recurrence and not looking at the other side, not looking at the risk of actually not using vaginal oestrogen. So it's about quality of life. It's about being able to have a relationship with your partner, being able to exercise, but also the risks of recurrent urine infections and then urosepsis. If you are admitted to hospital with urosepsis, you have an 18% risk of mortality in that admission with urosepsis. You know, and also the issues with the antibiotics, um, not only the resistance issues, but also your acute kidney injury issues with antibiotics as well. And we're trying to update our Scottish guidelines. And and I just kept banging on about, look, this cannot just be about looking at the breast risk. We've got to look at the risk of not using this as well. And it really, really frustrates me that none of these guidelines look at issues with quality of life and risks of urosepsis and AKI and recurrent antibiotics. Um, and I, I, you know, what's really sad is every single day in breast clinic, I see women that haven't been able to have sex with their partners for, you know, since they've been on their treatment with their aromatase inhibitor, or their tamoxifen, and they think, well, that's just how life is meant to be. And it's not, and we, it, sh- it should never be. And we need to just take 
take into account the quality of life and the, the impact that our medications are having on relationships, divorce rate. You know, again, every day in breast clinic, I'm seeing women who's, who's relationships have split up because they haven't been able to be intimate. And I think that so many of the specialists um, in the breast unit, I, I understand that they are so focused on breast cancer recurrence, but they're just, I think, often lacking the bigger picture about these women need to, we've cured them of their cancer, they need to live again and have a quality of life and not be told just go away and stop, you know, be happy you're alive and stop bothering us with your symptoms. And actually treatment is excellent, isn't it, in breast cancer? You know, success rates are fantastic. So there's that element as well that isn't often talked about, actually. And I think that's really important just to point out is actually treatment is excellent. And this is something else that we 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 need to we need to share and kind of champion breast cancer treatment. But as you say, Alison, it's just say actually it's about quality of life and it's about maintaining a, a healthy relationship as well. Yeah, I mean, um, so we know that uh, you know ninety percent of women survive their breast cancer, and actually ninety five percent survival rates with early stage early grade breast cancer. So its survival rates are significantly improving. And I think partly down to our treatments, but are these really aggressive treatments that we're using to keep women alive and stopping their breast cancer coming back is causing carnage to the rest of them. And, you know, I constantly say, look, these women are not just a set of boobs. And we have got to think about the bigger picture and think holistically and think think what impact we are causing to these women. And... Rightly, at the time of diagnosis, they're purely focused on survival, which is completely understandable. But usually about a year down the line, they're like, you know what, I I need my quality of life back. I need to be able to exercise, to work, to be able to have sex with my partner. It's just, yeah, we need to to be better at being honest with women about what our treatments are doing and about how much benefit they're actually getting from their treatments as well yeah i think that's right i think it's having the bigger holistic approach isn't it we you know we we talk about a holistic approach to menopause a lot don't we and a holistic approach to vaginal health is also really important you mentioned earlier that patient information leaflet within vaginal estrogens causing all sorts of havoc is really sad in a way because actually lots of women are taking that ownership. They're going, right, I, I, I need something. I want to use this. But then you do get that leaflet, don't you? It's like oh. when we're in GP land and it flags up on the software and you're like, oh, my God, it's red flashing thing at you saying, don't prescribe this. And you go, oh, crap, no, I'm not going to. Um, I think that's that's sort of the fear and the guidance like you were saying needs to change. And I know that that's a that's a that's a big ask. But actually what we're saying here is that that, you know, many of these treatments we're talking about, specifically vaginal estrogen, is really effective and really safe. Of course, you're going to need to discuss it with your doctor. We're not saying that. And you may even require an examination, but it's really important to to not, I guess, dismiss it as, as oh, I've had I've had a history of cancer. I can't use it. Would you say that's that's fair? Yeah, I, and I, but I still think that so many healthcare professionals, specifically, I think the breast surgeons still are, are a bit cautious about women using it if they are 
not thinking about the impact that our treatments are causing. So, you know, that can be really difficult when, uh, you know, I, I see women who said, oh, my, my surgeon told me I can't use this. And I just think, oh, my goodness, of course you can. But then, of course, they, it's so difficult then because the woman just doesn't know who to believe or, you know, they've taken that step to get the vaginal estrogen. You've kind of almost talk them into it sometimes because they've had their recurrent urine infections and then you say please don't read that leaflet and of course they read the leaflet and then of course then they stop taking it uh yeah it's that joined up thinking Alison though isn't it it's just as you say it's getting everybody up to date and clued up on menopause yes. treatment unfortunately it can't be just left to, to you <laughs> it can't just be left to the gps it's making sure all uh, specialists understand because actually then there's a, a there's a complete holistic approach just as we're talking about it's everybody is is clued up and understanding the data understanding the research understanding the evidence and what is actually possible for each individual woman and i actually think that's where gps are fabulous because they can see the bigger picture and they, they're so used to treating the women holistically so you know they're not purely just focused on the one tiny thing and they they can see all the risks and the benefits and, and the holistic reason. So, uh, yes, you know, most GPs are amazing at, at being able to see the bigger picture and, and treating treating women with vaginal estrogen. And so, Alison, just thinking about if there's a few things that we can advise women who particularly have had a history of, of cancer, and I guess I'm focusing mostly on breast cancer, patients here but we know there are lots of other gynae cancers as, as well focusing for a moment just on breast cancer and thinking about how we can empower women to get the support they need are there a few tips before we finish about what 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 they could know what they can do to help themselves where they can go for support so um so basically any woman who has had a breast cancer is um, and is not on any treatment, so previously had a breast cancer, can safely use vaginal estrogen. If a woman is on tamoxifen, she can safely use vaginal estrogen. The only caveat for some specialists, they worry about the romatase inhibitor and vaginal estrogen. And the reason for that is because the whole point of the romatase inhibitor is to plummet your estrogen to absolutely negligible levels. So 100-year-old lady levels, that's that's how I describe it to my patients. That's thought to be a good thing with regards to breast cancer recurrence, but actually it's really not a good thing for the rest of you, especially not your vagina. Now, in my practice, um, in my clinic, I will use the ultra-low dose estriol, so the Invagis, the Blissol, the Uvestin, even in women with aromat on aromatase inhibitors, because we know the absorption is zero. And the other thing you can try is something called prasterone, which is a DHEA pessary, and it converts to estrogen and testosterone in the vagina, but the aromatase inhibitor stops it converting to estrogen. So that again, when you look at blood levels, there's zero estrogen in, in, in the blood in the, in, um, in the blood from these, and it really is great for helping with sexual functioning. Looking at resources, um, I, I work with Health and Menopause, and we have a Menopause After Cancer resource on our website and it lists you know what you can take and and go through all the vaginal estrogen um danny again going back to danny because her podcasts are fabulous but she did a great one recently with sarah glynn 
talking all about um, the use of vaginal estrogen in, in breast cancer patients and, and non-breast cancer patients as well. So that's a really great podcast to use, to look at. BSSM guidelines are great, so British Society of Sexual Medicine. And I also refer my patients to the ACOG guidelines, which is the American Obstetrician and Gynecology um, Group. Uh, consensus statement 2021, so the ACOG 2021 guidance, and that goes through um, about using uh, vaginal estrogen in breast cancer patients and and, and non-breast cancer as well. Um, so that's a really good document. So they're they're great resources. Fabulous. Thank you, Alison, so much for taking time out tonight to talk to us and to debunk some myths I think that needed to be debunked about the safety of vaginal estrogen I think we're moving the right right way but we've still got got some some way to go so thank you so much for taking the time and of course we'll link all of those resources that Alison's just said and we'll link Alison who works also at the health and menopause group as well so you can have access to the leaflets that she mentioned as well but thank you oh thanks so much for having me